Hello and welcome to The Five Buy, your bi-weekly roundup of rapid-fire board game reviews and a proud member of the Inside Voices Network. In this episode, Kat is finding out just how good witches are when it comes to battle with Witches of the Revolution. I give you a tour of Welcome to Centerville, we're off to visit France with Mason in St Malo. Sarah spends some time with Burgle Brothers and a warm welcome to Ruel, who is braving pandemic the cure. Sit back, grab a cuppa and enjoy. I really enjoy my day job as a school librarian. I love introducing kids to amazing books in all genres. One of my favorite trends of the past few years is a tendency to bend history into fantasy. One example that comes to mind is Naomi Novik's fabulous Temeraire series, which envisions dragon riders fighting in the Napoleonic Wars. It's fun to see this trend also in the board game world, which is why Witches of the Revolution A cooperative deck builder from Atlas Games is such a draw for me. Created by designer M. Craig Stockwell, this game envisions a world where persecuted witches fight for their freedom in the American War for Independence. This theme made me so crazy happy. Inundated with an ever-changing row of events, each based on moments in the Revolutionary War, players try to build an effective deck that can combat any difficulties that may arise. To do this, you can recruit new types of beings, or collect one-time-use relics to help round out your deck. Each witch card has different abilities, and can be used to provide a number of icons towards solving one of the event cards that arrive each turn. Each player can contribute cards from their hand to support the current player, but that limits what they may be able to do on their following turn. Many events require cooperation as the number and type of symbols and interactive way that events in that row compound mean that solving them is often beyond the ability of just one player. Events have symbol costs on them. You must spend cards from your hand to your discard pile to complete event cards, discarding them from the event row. Each successful quelling of an event card contributes to accomplishing one of the four goals of the game and gives the current player an objective trophy to be used on a future turn. The events have text at the bottom of each card which may give some limitations for the card being overcome or connect in some way making other cards more dastardly or that card more dangerous the longer it stays on the board. Witches of the Revolution has a unique take on deck building, making the building part very challenging. Each card you buy, you must banish cards to purchase. If you aren't careful, you can whittle your deck away on powerful characters, but picking up your deck to refresh it increases the moon track on the board, making the cost for successfully quelling event cards a number of icons harder than what is shown on each card. Which means you can buy your way to powerful cards only to discover that every event is now more difficult to overcome. This game is very thematic, yet is built on solid gameplay mechanisms that work together well. No dice rolling is a definite plus. Many co-ops leave you feeling like luck not skill is required for player success. That leaves me cold, and to an extent, this game is not immune from that issue. The order that the event cards pop up can really create situations where gameplay is too easy or way too difficult. The way that you sort out cards to create a deck at the difficulty level that you would like to play is pretty time-consuming and complex for the simple deck builder that this game is at its heart. Other than these two small complaints, I think the game is great. Cleverly illustrated and named cards abound in this game. The objectives in particular are humorously tied with references to facts about the American Revolution that you might not remember from 5th grade social studies. Who knew that Paul Revere suffered from lycanthropy? The art by James Mosingo and Alan Washburn is charming, providing the thematic icing on the cake to a great card-based board game. 
The card backs are graphically beautiful, and the line-drawn, sepia-toned characters are great choice. Character decks contain diverse characters, not just white men, and being able to play female characters in a game set in this time period feels frankly revolutionary. I really appreciate the attention to detail in this game. The rulebook, a trifold pamphlet, really, is clearly laid out with full-color examples, suggestions for varying the difficulty of play, and even a common questions section. I don't generally like non-book-style rulebooks, but this was one of the best that I have encountered. My husband and I played this game seven times and really enjoyed it, but ultimately it felt like we played the game out, so the game will not likely remain a permanent part of our game library. However, I highly recommend playing this game if and when you can get your hands on it. It's a really fun and rich play experience with a truly unique theme. Too few people are talking about it, and it deserves some buzz. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear more from me, please follow me at Kybrarian on Twitter or find me as Cat Library on BGG. Hi everyone, Lindsay here. And this episode, I'm going to talk about Welcome to Centerville. It's designed by Chad Jensen, with artwork by Sheshu Nito, and published by GMT Games. It plays 2-4 to four and has a 40-60 minute duration. It wasn't too long ago that I wrote a blog post about this game, and so I usually like to wait a little bit longer before bringing it to the 5 by or just not discuss games already blogged about. But whilst it's recently released, I thought, why not? When I say recently... Um, this is actually a GMT P500 game, and I'm aware that not many people will know what that means. It's actually a really neat idea, and a nice stripped-down alternative to crowdfunding. In brief, a game is in development, we see the concept, designer notes, progress, and you put an obligation pre-order in. And once 500 customers have done so, it goes into final development and production, and then the game is shipped. Some, like the reprints of popular games, will reach that stage really quickly, others will take a while. And there's certainly a few I have my eye on right now. I spotted Centerville on Twitter late last year and it was eye-catching for two reasons. The front cover art looked kind of kitsch and sweet and it was a GMT game, which made me say, oh, because I associate the company with specialising in war games, which of course they do. I have cut my collection. Twilight Struggle was one of my top nine games of 2016. And I have real appreciation for the company. So some different stuff in the catalogue that isn't just specialist stuff, but I've not previously noticed any city building games using dice. So this really piqued my interest. I saw a couple of positive reviews um, on Rado Runs Through as well, and I decided to put an order in, and it was shipped shortly after. To break it down, over three main rounds you are using six coloured dice and can perform various actions depending on the dice faces and the combination in which they are used. You can construct the town, choose vocations, gain votes in the office, climb the green bell, occupy river spaces or be a dominant presence in the central park. A question mark can mimic another die and an hourglass cannot be re-rolled and will bring the round toward an end. At the end of each round you score up, perform maintenance and start a new one. As round 3 closes, you move on to final scoring. I'm not usually into dice games. I don't mind them, but rolling dice isn't my favourite mechanic. I don't like chance, I like strategy. So strategic dice manipulation, I actually really enjoy it. You have the option to re-roll and you have to do some on-the-spot strategic decision making. Although you can strategize long term as to what you'll try to aim for, 
You have to be prepared to rework that plan last minute and I like that. It gives the game a sense of urgency and it's quite intense. And I like the slight push or luck aspect with the dice rolling. Like, oh, I'll just try one more time and then roll an hourglass then your turn isn't so good after all. Um, but it's okay because that was your choice. Uh, that's why I like grabbing the media vocation tile so I can have a full three roll and take bigger risks. I love the element of error control in the voting office and when constructing the town. In the voting office, especially... The green office gives you another turn immediately when your turn ends. But I like that that doesn't necessarily mean that you'll have an unfair advantage because another player will have the opportunity to manipulate their dice to do exactly the same thing after you have. I I wouldn't say that's unbalanced at all. I love the dichotomy between the simplicity of the gameplay but the subtle complexity of the game itself. I'd put it somewhere in the middle of medium weight but it's light enough to play an hour or so and have some fun with. The toughest part I found to crack is when it comes to balancing the parts. My first game, which was more of a learning game to be fair, I thought I was doing well because I was really leading with prestige, but my wealth fell behind at one point, and as it's your lowest score that your final score will be based on, I lost. So the trick is to keep the balance in this game all the way through as much as you can, and whilst not neglecting other factors like your personal objective, or vocations which you set collect to be multipliers for end game points. So to summarise, there's dice manipulation, push luck, set collection, bit of area control, light on the spot strategy and tough balancing. There's also an aspect of the possible disasters you hit along the way and these are markers generated from the vocation bag. And wow, these can be punishing, like losing control in the office, having to discard half your vocations, it's soul-destroying. So there's definitely this urgency in the game, which makes it really fun to play. I also wouldn't associate this with being a city game where you build and see the fruits of your labour so much. I haven't actually played that many city games, but one of my favourite games is Suburbia, where you can see the growth, you sit back and think, wow, look at my town, isn't it awesome? But the cubes that accumulate in your town here don't really have the same effects, which I don't really have an issue with, it's just not a visual game like that. As a two-player game, you must play the third AI player referred to as bot and it's very amusing to me that in a two-player game you just kind of really resent it like you both want to win the game but neither of you want the bot to win and that's like a crushing defeat if it does uh, especially as you're responsible for its actions so not only is a two-player workable option but also gives you another challenge when managing the bot's move so that's clever stuff but be warned the box art is lovely and pretty and the game itself isn't the board components and text is as stripped down basic as it comes it's not fancy and i'm okay with that no pretty distractions just a good game which would be a good game no matter if it was shiny and pretty or not and it's not but that's okay jensen's next game in the same quaintly themed vein is called golden gate park it's a euro family game where you're spending the day in the park taking actions to perform activities and win on experience points for the best day and i think that sounds really lovely it's currently at 236 orders and i'd love to see it reach 500 by the end this year if you want to see and hear more from me you can visit my instagram and youtube channel shiny half meeples visit my website shinyhalfmeeplesco.com or follow me on twitter capital s capital h capital m meeples co bye for now hi i'm mason weaver let's talk about saint malo there's been a lot of excitement about roll and write games in the last five years including the recent movement to heavier more euro style games played with dice and increasingly complex score sheets Quix was released back in 2012, and it's probably the big flagship game in this genre. But that same year, Robinsberger published St. Malo, designed by the very deservedly acclaimed Inca and Marcus Brand. You may know the Brands from their award-winning game Village, or possibly their more recent Exit games. Ruth covered Exit back in episode 19, and Catherine discussed one of their other games, Rajas of the Gajas, in episode 27, 
and I talked about their more recent party game, Word Slam, back in episode 22. What I'm saying is that they're very good designers, and we really like their games here at the 5 by In St. Malo, you're building up a fortified coastal city in France, in Brittany along the channel to be precise. You do this by rolling and re-rolling dice, and then drawing symbols on your own player board. Unlike a straight Yahtzee-style game, you're not rolling for poker hands, but instead trying to get sets of matching die faces. The more faces you can match, the better the symbol you get to draw. You're adding people, churches, walls, warehouses, and residences, but as your city fills up, it attracts more and more pirates who come to attack and loot if you haven't protected yourself well. All the drawn elements in St. Malo are interactive, like most good resource management games. Rolling two green heads on the dice will let you draw in a priest, which is just a circle with a P in it. On his own, he doesn't do much, but if you can draw him adjacent to churches, you score points for each one of them. You want to fill in a section of your board with warehouses, so when you draw in a merchant, you can take some coins. You're going to need those coins to buy timber, which you'll need to build houses when you draw in the architect. All of this would be worthless, though, if you hadn't drawn in some soldiers to protect you or drawn in the walls around the city to repel those nasty pirates. St. Malo transcends the roll-and-write genre because it's a fully realized light Euro game in every respect. They could have absolutely released this game using tiles or chits or something instead, but it would have been a lot more expensive and probably less notable. One of the biggest draws for me is how little setup there is. There aren't tiles to lay out, chits to stack, it's just your player boards, markers, and the dice. Because you're just writing on a board, there are a lot of interesting variants and some new characters suggested over on BoardGameGeek. And it's also a great solo game, even though there aren't specific official solo rules. I played it solo a number of times with several of the suggested variants, and it is highly enjoyable. Part of it being suitable as a solo game is the low interaction. As a point of fact, it's almost zero interaction. All players are attacked by pirates at the same time, but beyond that, you may as well be playing alone. If you're the kind of person who is desperate to mess with other players, St. Malo is probably a pass for you. There's plenty of wiggle room in the design for variants to increase the interaction, but since I have no interest in confrontational gaming, I've not bothered to work any out. St. Malo was one of the first roll and write games I ever played, long before I knew that was even a kind of game. To my 2014 mind, it was pretty singular among games, and in a lot of ways, I think it still is. It's the only Euro I can think of that would be enjoyable to play outside on a windy afternoon, or to take to the beach or hiking or play in a moving car. It's sturdy, portable, and highly replayable. While there are certain specialties you'll gravitate toward, the input randomness of the dice makes it casual fun over and over again. St. Malo is relaxing, easy to teach to gamers already familiar with Euros, and very fulfilling, as unless you're just absolutely terrible at it or incredibly unlucky, you'll have a well-planned city to admire at the end of your game. Boxing components are very good, especially for a Robinsburger game. The player boards are thick and sturdy and wipe clean easily. The dice are wooden, which I quite like, but I know some people don't. The pens that come with the game are good quality, but we prefer to use dry erase markers. If you have a whole set of fine tips, and I'm assuming you do, since I'm assuming you're laminating all of your roll and write sheets, or at least you should be, you can even color code your buildings and the people as you draw them in. Uh, I normally only discuss games that are very, very easily available. Currently, you can buy new copies of St. Malo for about $25 US from Amazon or direct from Robinsburger. However, none of the major online US or Canadian retailers seem to have copies in stock. I'm not sure if that means it's going out of print or if it's just between printings or what. If, whenever you're listening to this in the future, St. Malo is out of print, please message me and I'll help you find a used copy or an alternative print-and-play version. My greatest hope would be for Ravensburger to be preparing some kind of expansion or sequel or new version with variable or expanded board setups and are just holding out an additional print run until then, but I am fairly certain that is just wishful thinking. So who should buy St. Malo? People who love Roland Rights but want something a little deeper. People who love city building. People who take comfort in tired and true Euro game themes. People who want a casual solo game they can enjoy with a cup of coffee. And people who like to draw little churches. 
I give St. Malo 10 out of 10 logs in your city's lumber storage that look slightly rude drawn next to one another. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter at Discount Compost. I'm a big fan of Tim Fowler's work. I have four of his six published games, and I've already reviewed two on this podcast, paperback in episode 10 and hardback in episode 30. Today, I'm going to talk about Burkle Brothers, the co-op game Fowler's published in 2015. As you might guess from the name, Burgle Brothers is a game about burglary, a heist or caper, you might say. You play a gang of criminals trying to rob a multi-level building. A grid of randomly placed tiles represents the rooms of the building, with little wooden rails to represent walls. The rules come with three wall layouts, beginner, standard, and expert. When you get tired of these layouts, there's a website that will generate infinite new wall configurations for you. The art by Ryan Goldsberry is outstanding. I love his work on all Tim Fowers games, and his cartoony, colorful style is perfectly suited to the theme of Burgle Brothers. The illustrations bring to mind a classic heist movie, like To Catch a Thief, or Michael Caine in The Italian Job, or the original Ocean's Eleven. I really appreciate the effort to make the characters in Burgle Brothers diverse. Three of the eight characters are women, and there is racial diversity as well. However, every time I play, I can't help but notice that the male characters come in all shapes and sizes, while the women have one shape, pinup girl, with that boobs and butts pose that is the bane of comic books. Also, there is a character wearing a turban and posing in a way that trades in cultural stereotypes, maybe to the point of Orientalism, that I wish they'd reconsidered. So kudos for including diversity at all, and I'm hopeful Goldsberry will do better in future games. The goal of Burgle Brothers is to explore the building, uncover tiles, locate the safe on each floor, and crack it by rolling dice. Once all three safes have been opened, players escape onto the roof. If all characters make it out, you win. But of course it's not as easy as that. Each floor has a guard who moves around the grid after each player's turn on a path determined by a deck of cards. If the guard and a character are ever in the same room, that player has to give up one of their three stealth tokens. If anyone runs out of stealth tokens and then gets spotted by the guard, the game is over, you lose. To add further complication, many rooms contain alarms that, if triggered, cause the guard to change course, head for the room with the alarm, and move faster until he gets there. This can cause problems if a character was safely tucked away, far from where the guard was going, but now because of an alarm, he's headed straight for them. Guards also speed up permanently whenever a safe is cracked. And whoever cracks a safe has to take a loot card which hinders that player in some way. So the difficulty level ramps up as the game progresses. Burgle Brothers is full of beautiful little thematic touches. One that I love is that if you turn the box on its side, it looks like a mid-century skyscraper. I always set up the box next to the game. As the characters escape, I place each meeple on the roof of the box. That is, assuming they make it out. Burgle Brothers is difficult, especially at three or four players. Like all good puzzly games, there's a rhythm to it, and until you get the feel for that rhythm, it can seem absurdly hard. Once I introduced it to a friend of mine, someone who has played many, many games, at the end he turned to me and said, how does anybody ever win this? At the time, I had to tell him I wasn't sure. I'd played Burgle Brothers several times and hadn't won yet, but since then I've learned a few tricks. First of all, separating the characters is essential. Each guard only moves if a player ends their turn on his floor. In a four-player game, if all four characters are on the same floor, that means each one has to get through four turns of guard movement before they can move again. By the end, when the guard is moving five or six spaces every turn, that is a long time to be sitting there waiting for the guard to cross your path. But the characters don't have to stay together. 
Anyone who isn't necessary to the task at hand can either move to a higher floor and continue exploring, or move to a lower floor and just run around avoiding the guard. Because it's so puzzly, Burgle Brothers makes a great solo game. My favorite way to play is solo with two characters. One goes ahead exploring tiles, while the other stays behind and cracks the safes. This keeps them on separate floors for most of the game, and I also find it helps to have one character collecting all the loot, so the other stays unencumbered by loot's negative effects. If I have any gripe about Burgle Brothers, it's the setup. It takes a bit of time to shuffle and lay out three sets of floor tiles and walls, and it is a table eater. When I backed the Kickstarter, there was an add-on to get a vertical stand that would let you stack the floors one over the other. I didn't get that stand, and I regret it every single time I set up a new game. Now, there is an app that makes setup and table space a non-issue. I generally prefer physical board games to apps, but the Burgle Brothers app is smooth, well done, and is a great way to play when you can't or just don't want to do all that setup. And that's Burgle Brothers. My name is Sarah, and when I'm not planning my next heist, you can find me on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Hi, this is Ruel Gaviola. Today I'm looking at Pandemic the Cure, a game by Matt Leacock, published by Z-Man Games in 2014, with art by Bernard Bittler, Philippe Guerin, and Chris Williams. Pandemic the Cure is a dice-based version of Leacock's classic cooperative game, Pandemic. Two to five players attempt to cure diseases in various regions of the world, before the diseases spread into a full-blown pandemic. These diseases are represented by the six-sided infection dice in four different colors. Numbers on the infection dice correspond to one of six regions in the world. Whenever an infection die is rolled, it's placed in the matching location. Each die also has a cross symbol on them. If one of these shows up, you'll put the die in the CDC. I'll come back to these soon. On their turn, a player rolls their character's dice and performs actions based on the rolls. Standard actions on all player dice include fly, sail, treat, and collect sample. Players use fly and sail for movement. You'll use treat to put an infection die from the current region into the treatment center, or you can put an infection die from the treatment center back into the infection bag. You'll use collect sample to take an infection die from the treatment center. This infection die is placed on your character card and used to find a cure for that disease. There are random event cards that players may use at any time. Remember those crosses on the infection dice I mentioned? You'll collect these in the CDC and use them to trigger events that will help you fight the diseases. Each character has abilities unique to their dice. For example, the medic's dice have more treat icons on them, so they can treat infection better than anyone else. The dispatcher's dice have more movement icons on them, and so on. At the end of their turn, a player may try to find a cure. They roll the infection dice they've stored on their card, and if they roll 13 or more, then the disease is cured. These dice and any in the treatment center are placed back into the infection bag. You may re-roll any of your character dice, but if you roll a biohazard, it cannot be re-rolled. For each biohazard, you move the infection rate marker one space, and every four spaces an epidemic occurs. Epidemics add more infection dice to various regions. If there are four dice of the same color in the same region, then an outbreak occurs and you'll move the outbreak marker one space. So there are three ways to lose the game. If the infection rate reaches the end of the track, if there's an eighth outbreak, or if there aren't enough dice in the infection bag to draw and roll on your turn. And there's only one way to win, cure all four diseases. I have a soft spot in my heart for the original pandemic. A few years ago, I'd never played a cooperative game, and the idea of working with other players to beat the game was something new and exciting. I loved figuring out how to save the planet from diseases. It was fun playing different characters and trying to find the right combination of special abilities to win the game. Pandemic was my introduction to the hobby, and it's a game I'll always have on my shelf. 
But now, when I want to save the world from killer viruses, I play Pandemic the Cure. It's faster to set up and easier to tear down and store. The components are fantastic, and the game takes up less table space than the original. And while I love Pandemic's big map of the world, this version has its own unique board made up of six regions orbiting the treatment center in the middle. The treatment center also doubles as the epidemic and outbreak tracker. I love the little syringe pegs used to mark your epidemic and outbreak progress. It's a nice thematic touch that ties in perfectly with the game and eliminates the clutter of an extra scoreboard. But where this game shines and outdoes its predecessor is that bag full of 48 infection dice and 37 player dice. Roll the infection dice to see which regions have been infected, then roll your player dice to see what actions you can perform. It's a more streamlined experience and there's something so satisfying and dare I say primal about chucking dice every turn. Of course, the dice introduce more randomness into the game, so this might not be for everyone. You can have a fistful of dice ready to cure a disease, but your fate is still up to the dice gods. Nothing can be more frustrating than rolling a bunch of 1s and 2s when you're trying to hit the magic sum of 13 to cure that final pesky disease. There's also the press your luck element that I really enjoy. Since your actions are based on your rolled player dice, you might not have all the actions you need. If you're trying to treat the diseases in your region, for example, then a bunch of movement icons do you no good. You may re-roll these dice in hopes of landing those treat icons, but you do so at the risk of rolling more of those biohazards that could add more infection dice to the world. It's a simple yet effective way to maintain tension throughout the game. In fact, I find Pandemic the Cure more intense right off the bat than Pandemic, since you're at the mercy of your player's dice actions. You can't plot out your moves ahead of time. You'll have to roll and see what actions are available, and it makes it a more tactical game. It's one way that Pandemic the Cure nearly solves the problem of the alpha gamer. If you've played Pandemic or any other similar cooperative game, you know all about the alpha gamer. It's the player who acts as a quarterback telling everyone what the best moves are on their turn. In Pandemic the Cure, each player has their own dice to determine their actions. Of course, there may be an optimal play for someone's turn, but if the dice aren't cooperating, there's nothing the alpha gamer can do about it. I love that more of the decision making stays with each player. You re-roll any dice you want, or end your turn at any time, no matter what a quarterbacking player may say. It's up to you to decide what you want to do in order to save the world. And just like the original Pandemic, it's a lot easier said than done. This has been Ruel Gaviola for the 5 by. Find me on Twitter at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A. Or visit my website, RuelGaviola.com. Thank you for listening to the 5 by. If you'd like to follow us, please do so on Twitter at 5 by Games. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 Games. Join our BGG Guild, number 2810, and listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or just follow all the links at 5bygames.com. Thanks for listening. The 5 By is a member of the Inside Voices Network. Find out more at insidevoicesnetwork.com.